Happy Easter. My name is Jim. I'm one of the uh, pastors here, and I just want to thank you so much for sharing your Easter Sunday with us. Uh, I don't know if Johnny mentioned it, but um, if you are visiting with us, if you could just take a moment, and in your bulletins there's a connection card. If you could just fill that out and drop that in the offering as, at the end of the service, we just want to get to know you a little bit and have an opportunity to start praying for you. So that's in the bulletin. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 24. And if you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry about it. We're going to put everything up on the screen. Um, In the early church, um, and has been sort of carried on um, by some churches and some traditions, um, especially at Easter time, there's a greeting that a a lot of people would do. um, And and what they would do is is like two people would meet and one person would say, He is risen. And And the other person would say, He is risen indeed. So I thought, for fun, let's just try that, okay? So I'll do the first part, and you guys do the second part. You guys ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Awesome. You guys did good. You didn't have to, yeah, good. Um, The problem with that, though, is that there might be some of you here who don't really believe that. And so I want to ask the question this morning and sort of dive into this question. Do you believe the resurrection? Maybe for you... Easter is sort of categorized um, with some other metaphorical events and holidays, and you just have a hard time believing that Jesus literally rose from the dead, that it was an actual historical event. Um, So before we actually get to that discussion, uh, I want to see if there's a few other things that you believe in, okay? Um, How many of you believe, can you bring up the next slide, that on July 21st, 1969, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Wow, not as many hands as I thought. Um, how many, all right, next slide. How many believe he brought alien life back with him? One, okay. <laughs> awesome. Um, how many of you believe that, uh, next slide, that on August 16th, 1977, Elvis Presley died and, and he is no longer in the building? How many believe he's still with us? Okay, good. <laughs> Um, how many believe um, Benjamin Franklin, in June of 1752, discovered electricity? <laughs> okay, not so many, a lot of unsure hands there. Um, how about the next one? How many Tupac fans we have? How many, <laughs> all the guys in the back. How many believe that on September 7th, 1996, he was shot and is no longer with us? except in the form of holograms at Coachella. Um, how many of you believe that um, Donald Trump is friends with Tupac? Was friends? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know what you guys believe. Uh, I don't know what you don't believe. But let me tell you why the church is gathering all over the world today. We're not gathering to celebrate that it's springtime and the flowers are blooming, although that's awesome. We're not gathering to celebrate the first full moon of spring, which is how Easter Sunday is, how you, how you know which Sunday Easter falls on. Um, we're here to celebrate that Jesus Christ literally and physically rose from the dead. That's what we believe and have embraced as Christians. But I recognize that there's some of you here today who don't believe 
that it literally happened, right? And the reason I want to take the next few minutes to just sort of wrestle with this question is that there's just a lot at stake in this one belief. There's so much hinging on believing in the resurrection. Because if the resurrection isn't true, then nothing Jesus said is true. But if the resurrection really happened, then everything Jesus said was true. Because his resurrection validates everything he said. If the resurrection didn't really happen, then Jesus' death was pointless. But if the resurrection really happened, then Jesus really did die for you. And if, and if, the, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then scripture itself says that we are to be pitied among all people. But if Christ really rose from the dead, then we have every reason to, to hope and to live transformed lives. See, what differentiates Christianity from every world religion is that Christianity's central figure is a man who walked this earth and whose life, death, and resurrection is recorded in multiple manuscripts of his day. This man claimed to be the actual son of God. He claimed that he had come to take away the sins of the world. And he claimed that on the third day of his death, he would actually rise from the dead. Now, what do you think would have happened if, after making all those claims... Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Nothing, right? Everybody would have chalked him up as another crazy person and just forgotten about him, right? But he did exactly as he said he would do. He rose from the dead. And those who witnessed the the risen Christ documented what they saw. So I want to take a look at just one of these documents here in Luke 24... And, and again, this is just one of the accounts of why the church is, is gathered together all over the world and celebrating today. Luke 24, beginning with verse 1. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but didn't find the body of, of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed down with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and that he would rise again? On the third day, then they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. Now, it's very important that these specific names are listed here in this account. This is how in ancient literature you would name a source, right? It's kind of like a footnote. 
And it might not seem like a big deal to us to like read these names, but if you were living in the first century, you could be like, oh, okay, I'm just going to go ask Joanna and see if this really happened, right? Verse 11. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. Now, if you're here today and you struggle with the idea of, of a literal resurrection, you're in good company, right? Because Jesus' best friends struggled with believing even though he had told them ahead of time that he was going to rise from the dead. Verse 12. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Now, it's kind of easy to overlook this, but I think it's important to note that Jesus' followers were not expecting the resurrection. I think it was, it was Reichen or Johnny who said a minute ago, they thought all hope was lost. Right? They weren't expecting this. They were not camped out at the tomb, waiting for the stone to roll away and out walk Jesus. They, they, even when they saw Jesus later, they even struggled to believe. And I'll show you what I mean. Um, so the story goes on in Luke 24. We'll, we'll skip this big part just for the sake of time. Jesus appears to two men traveling from Emmaus to Jerusalem. And he just starts walking with them and he talks with them and and uh, it's a pretty interesting story. You should read it. But when they get to their destination, it was started to get late. They invited Jesus to stay for dinner. He, and as soon as he broke bread, their eyes were open, and they instantly recognized Jesus, and he disappeared. So they freak out, and they run to find the, the disciples to tell them. And we pick up in verse uh, 35. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them, as they were walking along the road, and how they had recognized him as he was breaking bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost, because ghosts do not have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and feet. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Which is just like the most random question, right? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it. As they watched. Can you just imagine that scene? Their mouths hanging open watching Jesus eat a piece of broiled fish. So awkward. <laughs> then he said, When I was with you before, I told you what everything, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, Yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. Now, again, there are some people who just sort of view the resurrection as sort of a metaphorical 
resurrection. That didn't wasn't really historic an historic event. But Jesus' followers for thousands of years have embraced this story as historical fact, and for good reason. It's documented by multiple people. In the documentation, specific people are named so that people living 5, 10, 20 years later can hunt down those people and and ask them, did it really happen? In the book of Acts, which is the historical record of the birth of the church, it is recorded that Jesus actually hung around for another 40 days just appearing to people and teaching them about the kingdom of God. He didn't just, you know, rise from the dead, appear to his 12, and peace out, right? And then there are the archaeological findings that support and confirm all the written record. So simply applying all the rules that, that historians use to verify accuracy of historical writings, there's more than enough evidence to believe that this is an actual historical event that happened. But the real problem with thinking that the resurrection is metaphorical is that something happened that transformed thousands of people's lives. And they were not transformed by a metaphor. Right? Those who witnessed the risen Christ were radically transformed. See, the book of Acts tells us that this these people who followed Jesus formed this community, which would actually become the church, and it consisted of Jews and Greeks and Gentiles and pagans and slave and free, rich, poor, male, female, and they did not form this community that broke down every social and ethnic barrier to, on a, because of a metaphorical resurrection. Right? They certainly did not sacrifice land and property and and reputation and position based on a metaphor. And they absolutely did not go to their death by the thousands. They absolutely did not allow themselves to be tortured, put in prison, and killed for their belief in Jesus because of metaphorical resurrection. They believed because they saw with their own eyes. Their message from the very beginning was not based on the moral example of Jesus. It wasn't even based on his teachings. Their message was based on his resurrection. That's what they couldn't shut up about because they saw it. That's what the, and that's what they gave their lives for. And I think it's an important question for us to ask, even beyond the question, do you believe the resurrection? But... Why is it important to believe in the resurrection? Why believe the resurrection? I mean, what are the implications of believing that 2,000 years ago, the Son of God was crucified on a cross and rose from the dead three days later? I think the implications are huge, and and there are multiple implications that impact all of our lives in, in, in every way. But there are two areas in particular that all of us have a tendency to all of us have a tendency to have these two areas haunt us and even paralyze us and that is guilt from the past and fear of the future and the resurrection 
addresses both of those and frees us from both of them. Every single human being on the planet suffers from guilt from their past and fear of the future, each of which is a direct result of sin entering the human equation. The sin problem is the reason that each and every one of us suffers from guilt from our past and the things we did wrong and fear of the future, fear of judgment for what we did wrong. And Jesus came to do away with the sin problem for everyone who would trust him to do so. So one of the reasons that the the resurrection is so important, if in fact Jesus walked out of that tomb, if Christ is risen, there is forgiveness for your past. See, regardless of what you believe, we all recognize the brokenness inside of us, right? We all know something's broken. There's not a single one of us who haven't looked at our actions and think, what is wrong with me? Why did I do that, right? Um, And we have to have a a way to deal with the brokenness, right? We have to have a way to reconcile it or we're just miserable, right? We We have to find some way. We have to implement some kind of plan to reconcile our brokenness because we just can't stand living with it, right? And there's... And one of the ways, and, and we've all done this, is the good enough plan. Um, we've all used this at one point or another, but it's, the good enough plan is where you're like, yeah, I believe there's a God, I believe there's probably a heaven and a hell, and the way you get to heaven is by being good enough, right? Like you, like you just have to do more good things than bad things so that when you stand before God, the good things outweigh the bad, right? And if you're honest, well, let me just say this. If you're on the the good enough plan right now, let me just be honest with you. You're not saved. You're just exhausted, right? I mean, you're exhausted because you feel like you can never do enough, right? And you find yourself wondering, how good is good enough, right? Do I have to do 10 good things for every bad thing, or does it depend on how bad the bad thing is for, you know, and, and it's why in it's why many religious people leave the church because they are just religiously exhausted. Do you know where the, the, the good enough plan ends? If you're honest, it, it ends with failure. Because the truth is, you can never be good enough. And if you're not honest with yourself, it ends with you living a life of a hypocrite. Right? Those are the only two destinations that the road to good enough leads you. But there's also the comparison plan. And we've all played this, tried using this as well, right? And if you're on the comparison plan, you're like, yeah, I believe there's a God, that there's probably a heaven and hell. But I think the way it works is that you just have to be better than other people. Right? Like God's grading on a curve. You know, it's like, it's like, Camping with your friends, and you're sitting around the camp, and all of a sudden a hungry bear comes charging in. And you don't have to outrun the bear. You just got to outrun at least one of your friends, right? And, and so, yeah. <laughs> and if you're on the comparison plan right now, I want to be honest with you as well. You're not saved. You're just judgmental. Right? You have to be, right? 
You have to judge other people so you can reconcile in yourself the brokenness and sort of increase your odds of getting in. And, and what you've probably done in your mind is even create a list of sins that you think are inexcusable to God. And, and the sins that you think make God the angriest are the ones you don't struggle with. I mean, you recognize you're not perfect, right? But you haven't done any of the big ones like those people, right? I mean, isn't it amazing how we have this tendency towards self-deception? I mean, like, we have this ability to sort of self-edit and see ourselves better than we actually are. Uh, and it's true spiritually as well as physically. Like, have you ever seen a, a picture of yourself that you didn't realize was being taken, you didn't pose for? Um, I remember a while back when my six-pack started to turn into a keg. Um, but I still thought I was pretty fit, right? And I, I saw this picture that Vicky had snapped at one of our family gatherings. And I was in the background sort of fuzzy and out of focus. And you couldn't make out all the details. And it was more of a uh, silhouette of me. But, but I looked at that. I'm like, what? Who, who, is, who is that? That, wait, that can't be me. And so I went to Vicky and I showed her. I'm like, is that me? Is that what I look like? And she looked at it and she's like, that is exactly what you look like. <laughs> and I'm like, no way. That is like a five-month pregnant woman with really short white hair. You know, and... and <laughs> By the way, if you're five months pregnant, you look awesome, okay? Um, but when I saw that picture and, dis- and discovered myself, what I really look like, I realized how much we, like, self-edit. Even when I look in the mirror, right, I'm sucking it, my gut in. I'm sucking my gut in right now. I've been, have been doing it for the last 25 minutes. No wonder am I so exhausted after preaching. We do that, though, Right? We have this propensity to self-edit and deceive ourselves into thinking we're better than we really are. But at the end of the day, we're not good enough. And we're not really better than anyone else. And that's okay. Because scripture does not teach that good people go to heaven. Scripture teaches that the only people who go to heaven are the ones who embrace the gospel plan. If you have your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at just a few more scriptures and start to wrap this up. Um, But when you hear the word gospel, the word gospel literally means good news. And in reference to Jesus, or, you know, the biblical version of gospel, it means the good news of Jesus, okay? Um, and, And for there to be good news... There has to be what first? Bad news, right? The good news of Jesus begins with bad news. And the bad news is this, Romans 3, verse 23. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. See, God created a standard for living called the law. And... The law actually started with the Ten Commandments and actually became 613 commands of the law. And breaking the law is considered sin. And the law tells us that the penalty for sin is death. 
right? So we've all sinned. You're never going to be good enough to get to heaven on your own merits. That's the bad news. But the good news is Jesus, right? And when Jesus was here on earth, he made this statement. This is found in Matthew 5.17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And you might think, well, okay, great. How does Jesus fulfilling the law, how is that actually good news for me? Well, Romans 3 tells us. Look at verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all shall fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. What this is saying is that we can become right in God's eyes without obeying the laws of the, 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 the commands of the law. This righteousness that this gospel, this good news declares, is a righteousness by faith. That because we place our trust in Jesus, his righteousness is credited to us. In other words, Jesus came and fulfilled the commands of the law for us so that his righteousness is credited to us. That is awesome news, isn't it? That is awesome. And I love the last sentence of verse 22. It says, and this is true for everyone who believes. No matter who we are. That's awesome. Nobody's excluded. All it takes is believing that Jesus did this. And he tells us that he freed us from the penalty of our sins. But how exactly did he do that? He continues, verse 25. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. Remember, the penalty for breaking the law was death. God presented Jesus as the penalty that would pay for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So Jesus not only fulfilled the commands of the law for us, Jesus also fulfilled the demand of the law that was levied against us by dying in our place. The demand of the law for the sins we committed was death. And Jesus stood in our place and died for our sins. How awesome is that? We don't have to be fearful of judgment 
Because Jesus paid the price for our sins. Past, present, and future. So the other reason the resurrection is so important and why we need to believe it is because if Jesus has risen, there is hope for your future. Because he has risen, he validated the promise that he made to pay for the price of our sins. Let me read a a passage of scripture from 1 Corinthians 15. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians where he had once been and birthed a church there. He's writing and encouraging them. Verse 15, beginning with verse 1. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news, the gospel plan he's talking about, the good news that I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. This is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then jumping down to verse 21. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. And there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. You know, there are a lot of things in this life that we can experience that are pretty cool, right? That are pretty, pretty great. But how awesome will it be to experience the resurrection? I mean, I used to think skydiving would be a pretty cool, fun thing to do until I got married and had kids and found out that it was an exception on the life insurance. Um, But this is like reverse skydiving, right? How awesome is that going to be? I mean, that's going to be amazing. And and the scriptures say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That means no matter how amazing you can imagine heaven to be, you're not even close. How can we, with finite minds, even come close to imagining what an infinite God has prepared for us? And you don't have to be good enough. And you don't have to be better than. All you have to do is receive the free gift of God's salvation for you. And God didn't even leave us guessing on how we actually received that, right? How to implement the gospel plan. He gave us explicit instructions. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. And I want to give you guys an opportunity to do that if you've never done that. Whenever we talk about the gospel message, the gospel always requires a response. You just can't be neutral about it. You have to either kind of not believe it and reject it or embrace it and do what it actually says. So if you just bow your heads, I just want to pray with you guys for a minute. If you're here this morning and maybe you've been on the good enough plan or maybe you've been on the comparison plan trying to, you know, kind of reconcile the brokenness inside. And you've never implemented the gospel plan based on what these scriptures just said. If that's you, and you want to implement the gospel plan here this morning, just right where you are, just as a moment between you and God, just raise your hand as a sign of surrender to God. Say, God, I want to implement the gospel plan in my life today. This Easter 2016, I want that to be me. Maybe you're here this morning, and you know that at some point you asked Jesus in your heart, made him Lord of your life. but you've just sort of drifted away. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to get caught in the current of this world and sort of drift from where we should be. And if this morning on this Easter, you would like to just sort of recommit your heart. Just say, God, I want to get back on track. Maybe you've even recognized in the back of your mind you're trying to default to the good enough plan or the comparison plan. None of that works. If you want to live just with assurance of your salvation and know you're right where you need to be, just right where you're at, say, God, I'm I'm recommitting today. Just raise your hand right where you're at. God, I thank you for your gospel and I recommit. Father God, I thank you so much for everyone here this morning and I trust God that each and every one of us are right where we need to be in our relationship with you. It's a journey and we're not perfect but we trust in you God. We trust in Jesus' sacrifice that it was enough even when I mess up. God, I thank you for each and every one here this morning, and I thank you that your, the sacrifice of your son was enough for all of us. And that's what we celebrate this morning. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen.